Hi, this is Jessie of A Polar Night. And this is Heather of Tangled Bee Crips. And, and we are the Not So Crazy <laughs> Podcast. Sorry, we, we still, we're on episode like 10 and still haven't figured out what we're doing with our lives Whee! and how we do this. Hey, <laughs> so today's topic, we're going to be talking about feminism in crafting. And I'm super duper excited about this one, especially since we just recorded our Girl Scout episode. Wee. Even though we'll release this one before the Girl Scouts, maybe. Follow we'll your figure heart. it out. Follow your heart. I will follow my heart. <laughs> Scream inside my heart. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to talk about this topic just because there's been a lot of public policy things coming up with the abortion rights and bullshit with Roe v. Wade getting overturned in the Supreme Court. And just a lot of other stuff. And so we thought this was kind of apt to talk about ways that women and their allies have used crafting in order to achieve greater gains in the political sphere. And so uh, one interesting kind of recent thing besides the bullshit that happened with Roe v. Wade is in 2021, the feminist cross-stitch book got pulled from Michael's Craft Store's for profane language. But this is a book that when I do a lot of my like cross-stitch pieces where I hide them in like women's bathrooms and stuff, this is one of the books I pull from. And they've got like different messages like there's a pattern that's a teacup and it says male tears and it's like filled with tears. So I like that. I wondered where you were getting those from. Yep. Um, So I do a lot of those ones and I just stash them in my favorite place is Starbucks bathrooms because they're like the gender neutral bathrooms and I kind of want men to see them so uh but yeah so it's it was interesting because like that link that book has like the word fuck in it and cunt and I just I'm surprised that a craft store would feel the need to like censor itself because I feel like craft stores are all about creativity and self-expression and that expression is not always going to be the neat little Christian bow. Yeah, like, if it was Hobby Lobby who pulled a book like that, or just didn't, honestly, they wouldn't carry it in the first place. But, like, that wouldn't surprise me. But Michael's kind of surprises me, especially with, like, I don't know, they have a lot of weird stuff during Halloween and, like... The witchy I, stuff, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've seen way more, I don't know, concerning things or something for that sort of mindset that would be more alarming. Yeah, so they did apologize, and now it's available in their online store, and they basically said, you know, they're concerned that since they have so many younger shoppers that that could get into the wrong hands, and just making sure that, you know, it's only accessible to older people, but I thought that was weird. It's just, I mean, I understand their book section, the way that it's laid out is it's a pretty low-lying rack so that anyone can grab a book, but, like, why not just put the book somewhere else up high or like you know like the cross stitch section or like the the embroidery floss and everything that's a aisle that has high shelves like why not just put it up high where children can't reach it boom you've solved the issue if anyone complains just say hey it's not it's not accessible to children unless someone either climbs which you're not supposed to be doing or if an adult hands it to them i've always wanted to have like an adult only craft store where it's but it's like also got like cordage for bondage and like patterns for penises and things like that so I worked at Adam and Eve and we had like a lot of a lot of stuff like you know we had the like uh what are those called the like I don't have sex I don't know <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's like a clone willy that's what it's called so oh yes. Actually, like, makeup. yes yeah yes 
exactly I want that in a craft store and then like also the like vagina print fabrics and stuff yes. that would be so fun or like the embroidery patterns that are like very like po- body positive where it's like the bigger women getting eaten out and stuff Yes. I love it. Or the gay the gay oral sex. I love those, too. So years ago when I was, like, a teenager, there was a website that was called All About Vaginas, and it was about menstrual health and vaginal health and stuff. It's since not up anymore. I actually want to look at it on the Wayback Machine and see if I can find it because they had a little coin purse that was a, a, a vulva, and it had a little pearl as the clit, and it was so adorable, oh. and I've been wanting to make one, and I cannot find this pattern anywhere. I used to have it, and then my old computer died, and the hard drive was uh, irretrievable. Oh. So I'm going to find it. I'm going to get that PDF, and if I get the PDF, then I'm going to see if it's okay for me to share it. <laughs> yes. Yes, that would be amazing. Or we could do, like, a craft along where we all make our own vulva coin purses. Ah! That would be an amazing Gorgon first craft along. I love that idea. Oh, if you guys want to participate, let us know, and we'll put a little bit more energy into finding the PDF. <laughs> I'm pretty good at finding stuff, so we'll, like, I have a website from when I was, like, 14 that I found recently. It was super cringeworthy, and no, I'm not telling you how to get there. But I can, <laughs> I can find stuff. Nice. So... American history of women and crafting in general. So for those of you who know me, I'm all about learning and like putting things in the greater social context. So um, it's important to know that contributions, but and this is talking about like US centric, right? So women and crafting goes way back to human existence. And so I'm talking about US, so think like 1776 and beyond, um, or like just before that fun time. Uh, But the contributions by U.S. women to the fields of art and crafts has been significant. Throughout our country's history, women artists have been innovators of style and leaders of movements, blazing a trail for others to follow. Uh, Though they have been faced by societal disapproval, inadequate education opportunities, and exclusion by historians, specifically art historians, you bastards, uh, their determination has only been strengthened by these obstacles, making their achievements all the more meaningful. Arts and crafts were essentially for daily life and function, so if it wasn't practical, if it didn't lead to a greater household need, it wasn't likely to get done. Uh, So for example, clothing, baskets, pottery, but we did start seeing as America started identifying itself as that sovereign country and really moving forward to developing the political system and changing that political landscape, we did start seeing more activism with crafting. And it's really interesting because We see a lot of examples early on with baskets, pottery, quill work, paintings, leather painting, quill work produced by the Native American or indigenous population. Uh, And then we had enslaved people relying on crafts to maintain connection with their heritage. So this is where we see a lot of um, traditional African arts happening, Haitian art happening. But a lot of them were influenced by the availability of supplies. So when the enslaved people came were brought over, they didn't necessarily have access to the same plants, to the same fibers, and so they had to adapt. And so there's that disconnect, which of course is going to cause some other social issues down the road with that comparison of, oh, that's not how traditional Africans do it, or that's not how traditional Mexicans do it. So, yeah. Uh, But we also see a lot of embroidery of like flowers and birds and Jesus and alphabets and aphorism and lots of rugs and quilts. Yeah, so I think 
we've talked about uh, Deerfield, historic Deer, Deerfield is what it's called, but it's like a, a village that was actually as it was, and you can go, you can have weddings there and stuff like that, but when we were kids, Weird. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it's kind of funny. My sister got married there, and it's beautiful, but, like, your reception has to be over by 10 p.m. because it's in, like, a historic building, and they have to shut everything down and get, like, the people that are dressed in the garb and stuff out for the huh. night, so... Yeah, it's it's an interesting place. Um, but as kids, we did field trips there. Like everyone in Massachusetts goes to Deerfield for a field trip, and you do like the carding, and Ooh. you get to learn about wool and stuff. And then you go into the kitchen and you see like the dirt floors, and you learn about how men basically weren't even allowed in the kitchen. Like they didn't go in the kitchen. Men men just stayed out of the kitchen, which is wild because you know you hear about places like. Uh, apparently, like, North Korea, like, men don't go in the kitchen. That is not a thing that they do. Like, if you're a man and you get assigned the job of, of chef, it's considered to be a, a dishonor, basically, to have be given that job. And I, I know that because recently I've gone on a North Korea deep dive with people that have brought information out. So I just think it's interesting that in societies where women are kind of being uh, subjugated, that the kitchen is considered to be the woman's do- domain and they're only given the access to, like, crafts or making these specific things. Oh, interesting. Hmm. It's so weird because when you think about, like, the number of Michelin-starred chefs around the world, they're almost all men. Yeah. Like, that's wild to me. No, and, like, in my family, like, it's weird to think about because I grew up with the men in my family cooked. Like, my dad is the cook. Like, my, my mom could cook basics. Like, she could feed us. But, like, my dad actually made, like, food. Like he, it was a thing that he took pride in, and my stepmom didn't touch food at all. She, hmm. she did not, she did not cook. She cut up stuff for salad. Like that was it. <laughs> Weird. Cool though. Yeah, but very different. Hmm. So yeah, early American Revolution to pre-first wave. We see uh, the leggy, 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 Betsy, legend of Betsy. <laughs> Griscom Ross, uh, being approached by Continental Congress, headed by Washington, to design a flag for the nation, nation, uh, which is actually most likely and true. What historians think really happened was that her son or nephew or grandson, uh, William J. Canby, so his grand, her grandson, was going for office and kind of made up this story to be like, oh, yeah, I'm such a true patriot. My grandma made the flag. <laughs> Uh, when actually it's believed that it was probably uh, designed uh, by somebody not Betsy Ross. So that's kind of just an interesting little tidbit there. But women didn't have a whole lot of formal education, so a focus of their education or training was on sewing and embroidery. And interesting fact, in 1868, that was the first time that women were allowed to draw a female nude and then 1877 was the first time that they could draw male nudes. But even then, they had to have permission from, like, their parents or their spouse or whatever, which is just weird. Yeah, that's... Like, I get it in the social context, especially with, like, Protestants and whatnot, but, like, it's just wild to me. Because yeah. I feel like that's such an essential part of understanding human form is seeing the naked muscles and, like body movement it's interesting to see it from a cultural standpoint too because i feel like we've inherited some aspects of that because if you go to like europe or you talk to people who've traveled extensively in europe like it's there's certain countries where you can see some level of nudity on tv like just on normal tv because it's not seen as immediately sexualized 
right. and this idea of like hiding the opposite gender's form as a matter of it, it's immediately sexualized is such an American thing, I think. Yep. Also, the arts and crafts movement started in England during the 1870s helped lift crafts to the level of art for the first time in the modern world. This was a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. This movement ended in early 1900s as it couldn't compete with affordable manufactured items. So really, we see this happening in England, and of course the U.S. is paralleling what's happening in England because of all the shipments of immigrants and whatnot. Um... So we see Americans start focusing more on getting back to their roots and crafts and fighting against industrialization and blah, blah, blah. So then first wave feminism hits. This is between 1900 and 1959. And this was focused on women's suffrage, uh, which really focused on property rights and political candidacy. And we see a lot of examples of crafts being used in these movements. We see uh, the Artists' Suffrage League, which highlights lack of control that working women had over their lives when all laws were written by men. Hyper-industrialization garment factories. So what was happening during this time is women whose only real opportunity for income and feeling like they were contributing was through making clothes, making bedding, making all these other things by hand that was being taken away and they were being further devalued through industrialization. And then we have suffrage banners being made, rosettes, sashes were huge. You see all those uh, photographs of women with their little hand-painted signs and their sashes and their little hats. Uh, sewing was seen not only as a way to achieve financial autonomy, but also a way to express their own voice. And it's been a form of political advocacy since the 1700s, at least. Uh, but an interesting time, interesting incident that happened during this time was actually the Battle of the Roses, referring to the rosettes, where yellow was used by suffragettes to advocate for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Yellow for those supporting amending and red for those opposed. Tennessee was the final battleground for ratification and there was a massive showing out of gold and yellow by the suffragettes and their supporters. Yellow was being represented in hand and machine sewn garments, flags, banners, rosettes, and other items. And I thought that was interesting because I've never actually heard of the Battle of the Roses in this context. Um, but I think how cool it would be for us to like, given the culture, the current political issues going on now, I think green has really been the color for abortion rights, if mm -hmm. I'm correct. But it's interesting. Um, it would be interesting to see if yellow made a resurgence as far as the color, rep what it represents. And then we also had the Red Cross Production Corps. So, like, women still weren't being allowed to be, like, real members. You know, I say that in air quotes, real members of the Red Cross. And so they created the Production Corps. Uh, where it was like under the slogan of knit for Sammy campaign for the American World Wars where it was like okay if you want to contribute you know knit socks knit hats knit mittens all that fun stuff and I wanted to bring up too just because I just looked it up because I was kind of curious is around the same time 1913 um, Juliet Gordon Lowe was founding the Girl Scouts and this is around the same time that she also hand painted the trefoil logo so there is a lot of oh. um, different movements with women with creating symbolism and crafts kind of becoming meaningful in that sense of, of creating symbols and logos and things that had to be created by hand because we didn't have graphic design yet. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I, love I just how thought that was a little interesting aside. Not completely related, yes. but happening tangentially. Yes, especially even our episodes that we're recording. Uh, so second wave of feminism was 1960 to 1989. And the focus of this wave was really reducing inequalities in sex, family, workplace, reproductive rights, and then the de facto inequalities and official legal inequalities. And it really kicked off full throttle with fuel from the civil and gay rights movements as well as other anti-war demonstrations. So it's really important to understand that women, regardless of color, regardless of social standing, would not be where it was at right now if it had not been for the work of uh, people who identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, or other civil rights movements related to black rights and um, immigrant workers. So it's really important to recognize that. And so during this time, we saw a lot of art warriors of the second wave of feminism. So the goal of the crafts um, and arts during this time was to impact and transform the cultural attitudes and stereotypes. So we see a lot of vulva art. We see a lot of Georgia O'Keeffe work. Um, arts and crafts of the time tend to assert sexual and gender differences with emotional, physical, and mental differences while giving women the opportunity to assess and understand and share these feelings. The focus of these pieces was to showcase the world from the women's perspective, specifically cis white middle class women. And that's important to understand because this is not representing people who identify as non-binary, people who identify as trans. It, trans, it is very exclusionary. This is really where we get a lot of that rooted turf belief. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's, oh yes, women and men think different. Their brains are different. Blah, blah, blah. Um, we also see women artists in revolution or war founded during 1969. We see um, the work by Anna Mendieta, uh, The Rape Scene in which uh, the Cuban-American performance artist best known for her jarring work uh, was challenging viewers to take a stand against violence against women. And this photograph, for those of you, uh, and this is a big trigger warning, uh, but this piece in specific is her, the artist, bent over a table, kitchen table, tied up, and there's blood everywhere, and she has very clearly been sexually abused. And she wanted to do this work because she felt that when there were legal cases involving rape or when a woman said she had been raped, the response was to blame the victim rather than recognizing it for the crime that it was and see that, like, no woman is no woman is asking for this. This is what you're saying they're asking for. Like, you need to understand the visual component of what is going on to this and what the actuality of rape is. Judy Chicago, founder of the first feminist art program in the U.S., uh, and this was interesting because before then, women weren't allowed into art school, which is interesting given, like, the previous history of all they were, you know, quote, good enough for was arts and crafts. Mm -hmm. So this, like, weird shift is really interesting. And then second waivers attempted to differentiate between art and craft, which you and I have talked about having an episode talking about the difference between art and craft and how does that get defined. Mm-hmm. Creating a dichotomy to raise the profile of textiles as a legitimate art form. Viewed women with contempt if they chose to stay and do domestic work. And so again, we have these women, you know, this is the movement where it's like, women are defined as this and we are strong and we are fighters and we aren't domestic, we're working, we're in the field, you know, we play baseball, which all valid, 
but also that shouldn't discount and devalue other women who choose to be domestic goddesses. And then we have third wave of feminism. Um, or I guess before I jump into that, did, do you have any thoughts on the second wave feminism? Uh, I believe, I'm not, I, I can, I'm not, I want to look this up before we include it in the episode, but Lucian Day is my favorite textile artist. I'm pretty sure this is around the time that she worked. And she, I believe, actually really fought to break into the industry. She was absolutely brilliant, did a lot of modern art uh, in her textiles. And she required the backing of men in order to do the work that she did in a very large way. Um, so she was technically there. She's known as a trailblazer, and she absolutely was, and I don't want to discount that, but I just want to emphasize that even women who were, quote-unquote, successful in art up to this point had male sponsors. Like, uh, in the first wave of feminism, you know, Frida Kahlo, she, um, she had many men in the art world who vouched for her and made it possible for her to do the things that she did, and she was seen as valid because men saw her as valid. It wasn't like... At this point, you couldn't just be valid on your own rights. You had to almost have a man vouch for you and make that possible for you to work. Third wave feminism, 1990s, 2000s. Uh, can you just, just going back now that I'm like processing it and digesting, could you imagine having to have your husband vouch for you to do your wire wrapping? It would be enraging. Like, I can't even, like, I know it's the culture and the time in which they lived, so maybe that felt slightly different, but having that level of talent and almost feeling like you have a freaking handler or actually having a handler yeah what it was like you couldn't uh, you couldn't have your own bank account like uh depending on where you lived you couldn't travel by yourself uh, at that point in time like being a woman uh there's just so many things where it's like wow you like had to have a man like there was no way around it and just thinking about how so many men at least today, are very, like, lazy and trying to get them to do anything, let alone, like, do something for you. I can't even imagine how frustrating that would be. <laughs> uh, third wave feminism, 1990s to 2000s, focused on embracing individualism and diversity. Uh, examples of crafts in the movement included crafting and needlework, uh, transitioning to a resurgence of popularity with the younger demographic of first world countries or developed countries. Um, we have things like the Stitch and Bitch, uh, educated, intelligent young people reclaiming traditions and history behind needlework, but rejecting the assumptions placed on crafting and engaging in activism and social justice causes. Uh, directly challenging notions from second wave feminism on women's roles in the domestic field and value of crafts. And this is like around the time that Martha Stewart was really hitting her, like, peak, to mm -hmm. be honest. We see a rise of the do-it-yourself culture to combat mass production, exploitation of cheap labor, and support eco-movements. And, like, I feel like we're still, still, still in the DIY movement, where, like, I think everybody is trying, especially with COVID, when COVID hit, I think we saw, like, another, like, yeah. amp up of that. Uh, and then we have the 302 calories, the pattern for edible panties knit with licorice rope, which given the earlier patterns we were talking about, I really would be interested in the pattern for edible panties. Not even like for any like sexy time, because like just I said, I don't have sex, <laughs> but because I just want to be able to see what it would feel like to make that. So, and also like 
talking about body positivity, there's no way panties that fit my butt would be only 302 calories. Like, I just gotta be at least double that. <laughs> so, yarn bombing, knit and crochet graffiti uh, increased a lot during the 2000s. And I've actually been wanting to yarn bomb, but I need to do more research into the eco ramifications because it would have to be non-synthetic material. Mm-hmm. So probably like cotton. So I can't speak to the crafting because I haven't done any research and frankly a lot of artists during this time like I'm just not going to be familiar with. But I will say that I remember, you know, we lived through the 90s. Uh, (laughs) I remember the way that we were taught about feminism and racial issues and all kinds of things. We were, it was spoke about as if it was resolved. Yes, um, yes. In school we it's were over. taught. Yeah, like, like, oh, racism is done. Like, we were taught, like, this wasn't something we had to constantly work on. We were taught, like, it was ingrained in us in school. Like, and I, I can only say this as someone who went to um, white middle class. Like, I was poor, but, like, you know, we, we went to a white middle class t- sort of school. Uh, everyone, like, looked the same. Their families had lived in the town for, like, 200 years kind of a thing. Um, and you know, that's the way we were spoke to. But also I had the experience of having an Alaska Native stepmother. And I remember being in class and it was third grade. I will never forget this. We were making those sugar cube igloos. If I, I, I know like a lot I of people. I didn't even know that was a thing. People in Alaska have actually done them too, which I thought was wild. Cause I was like, that's interesting. But she was teaching incorrectly. She was saying, yeah, like Eskimos live in igloos. And for one thing, she's using the term Eskimo, which I'm using it because it's the term that my family uses, frankly. Like, they have used that term. Uh, It is considered derogatory in Canada, and there are some people in Alaska who also now are considering it derogatory, but it depends on the individual. For my family, that is a term they use, so that's why I'm using it here, just for the record. But she said, you know, and they they use the term Eskimo in school. So they were saying, you know, Eskimos live in igloos. And I was like, "Mm, mm, I mean, you're technically true because an igloo means house. And, yeah, my stepmom lives in the house with us. Like, <laughs> we, like, we do live in a house. And I, basically because I called her out in front of the class, she got embarrassed. And I got put in the hall. So I just want to put Whoa. that out there. But that was my experience. So, like, when people talk about their experiences in the 90s where they're, you know, a person of color and they're sitting in a classroom, they're being told that racism is, like, resolved. And then they have these experiences, like... Or sexism is resolved and it's women going to the doctors and not being listened to uh, that was happening and it just didn't get talked about or if it did it was it was definitely getting more rug swept and I, I think that that's uh, something that we hopefully are starting to talk about more now yeah I also think this is an interesting time just thinking about like the context of fashion at this time and like all the shows on TV like there was a lot more glitter in the universe during this time Mm-hmm. A lot more glitter usage in general, inflatables. Like, I just think about the amount of, like, plastic that was in everything. Yeah. So. And the portrayal of women on TV in that time, too. Was it really interesting? Like, real world? Like. Or Buffy. Yep. Like, there's just a lot of, like, I feel like it was okay to some degree to be a sexualized woman, but also people were still going to talk shit. Like, that's why we see so much toxic shit with Britney, and that's why we see, you know, like, she got decimated and she was a teenager she was a literal child and being sexualized and then being talked badly about and that's we saw a lot of that culturally happening where you would be sexualized but also treated like shit for it yep blamed for having sexual power that other people wanted to have or harness yep 
Yay, feminism. <laughs> so then we have the fourth wave feminism, 2008. I said that's so weird. I'm so sorry. 2008. <laughs> I don't know what is wrong with me. Um, just, just kick me off the show. I don't belong here. Uh, <laughs> we have been recording like all day at this yes. point. <laughs> um, but this one's focused on the empowerment of women, the use of internet tools, and intersectionality. So again, recognizing that feminism in its purest, best, most powerful form does not exist and should not exist unless we are recognizing that the definition of woman includes people who are trans and non-binary, people of color, and people of different social economic statuses, all that fun stuff, all the isms, right? People with disabilities, everything needs to come into consideration when we're looking at feminism. And so um, the survey from the Craft Yarn Council of America in 2009 indicated a majority of crafters participate because it's enjoyable and empowering. So they're not using it for income so much as they were at, at that point using it for joy. It provides a link to the past. They uh, So with this movement, we see a lot more of reaching back to the past of quilting because my grandmother quilted. But we see that it skipped that generation, right? Like it's like grandmother and then the grandchild. But that middle generation, which was in the third and second wave, those parents not so much having done it. And that's pretty consistent with my experience where my mom sort of crocheted but not really mm-hmm. sort of could sew but not really and so um seeing all of that uh we have the me too movement coming out and really influencing crafts we see a lot of like um jewelry with the me too movement we see a lot of uh sewing patterns that involve me too cross stitches that involve me too uh, language like the future is female thank you queen bay he for sure he for she campaign to get men and boys behind the movement and then we see a lot of different crafts happening in this time so i think the most notable or like the most easily called recalled is the pussy hat power um january 21st 2017 when uh mr trump became president and women were marching against that now there is some pushback against this because of how it seems to only represent cis white women and so there was concerns about that being brought up and you know pink pussies not everybody has a pink pussy but it identifies as woman collaging has also become really huge where there's a lot of political collaging and um like juxtaposing that was some more startling images or like food and talking about like food insecurity things like that increase in size in inc- or there's an increase in size inclusive knitting and crochet patterns so we see patterns going up to larger sizes than it used to a lot of patterns used to stop at size 14 or 16 and we see them going beyond even that and then we have a lot of embroidery and cross stitch focusing on size inclusivity non-binary and non-white patterns and motifs we see like we mentioned earlier, um, for sexy craft shop, we see more patterns of inclusive bodies um, and different types of relationships. Now, intersectional feminism and TERFs, we've mentioned it a little bit, but like I said, intersectional feminism is not just for the benefit of middle-class white women. It should be inclusive to people with disabilities, people of color, people who identify as non-binary, trans, all that fun stuff. And a TERF is a trans-exclusionary rights feminist. 
Um, and these are people like J.K. Rowling, who don't believe that people who were not born with a vagina and a womb are women. Um, and it gets a lot more in-depth and terrible and atrocious, but I at least take the stance that there's no room for turf on my lawn. So. Nice. Stole that from Charlie Cape, and I can't take credit. Um, but yeah, so... It's kind of the overview of, like, some history. Like, this is, like, a really quickly pounded out history, and that's me punching my hand for anybody wondering what that smacking noise is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a quick rundown of some of the historical relationships with feminism and crafting. Jesse, do you have any thoughts, anything that this stirred up for you? Yeah, I think that, you know, especially when we were talking about, like, the 90s and thinking about how much room we had to go, I think that seeing the internet and seeing how we have so much more interconnectivity and the ability to share ideas has both been a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. You know, we're able to connect easier and to see that we have these universal experiences like women getting together and talking about their experiences of being, say, dismissed by doctors. Not like I have any experience with that at all. Um, But, like, being able to, like, talk about this and have it be a thing and bring it to the attention of doctors and of the medical machine and be like, hey, no, this is literally a problem. Like, it's not all of us. Like, we can't all be having the same problem. Like, at some point that you have to admit that the doctors are the problem, not us. Um, And having that ability. The downside is, is that then you get the people like TERFs that are getting together in groups and spreading false ideas and spreading hate. And, And so we have this, like double-edged sword of the internet where it's a really great tool for connecting but it's also unfortunately a really great tool for misinformation yeah and I I will say for me the way that that relates is it's definitely inspired me to do more of that Gideon crafting where it's like like when the bullshit about Roe v. Wade just hit I ended up cross-stitching a bunch of like cross stitches that said resist or a woman's place is in the revolution and placing that because I, I didn't know how else to cope with this angry energy. Like, I was just so angry. And it's like, well, I can't blow things up. I'm not going to be a terrorist. But I do need to, like, show other people, hey, you're not alone in your rage. And also feel somewhat productive with this anger. So now that um, some time has passed since you know, the, the decision's been handed down and we've kind of gotten more information and we've seen some states make decisions... I know that, like, for instance, seeing the choices made in Kansas has made me a lot more hopeful. Um, It feels a lot less like this. It's not fixed by any stretch, but there's glimmers of hope. And I wanted to get your take on how you're feeling since there's been some time. Yeah, so for me, it's interesting. So with Gish, one of the items that I ended up taking on was creating a website that lists all the fake pregnancy crisis centers in your state. And I was surprised because Alaska has like 10 or 11. And I really didn't think there would be any outside of Anchorage or Fairbanks. And there's actually ones in other places too, like Kenai and Homer. And it's interesting because right now Alaska is up for, there's going to be on the ballot a thing to update the Constitution and have a constitutional convention. And right now abortion is a constitutional right in Alaska. And so if the Constitutional Convention is approved and we have this more conservative majority in the House, I suspect that will lay the groundwork for us to lose abortion as a constitutional right in the state and we'll be looking at a very different climate for women. But yeah, I am still feeling pretty angry. I'm still frustrated at how things are going, but 
I don't think I feel as hopeless as I did. I think that it's been interesting seeing people come together, both men, non-binary, trans, um, as well as women come together to say, hey, this is where we stand. This is the support we're putting. So I think even though all these terrible things are happening in the political sphere, I'm seeing more individuals step up and get angry. Yeah. So, but it's also interesting because I've had to have more conversations with loved ones about like, what are, what do you think abortion means? Like, what does that actually look like in your brain? Because yeah. I think you have a very weird conception. Like, not necessarily rooted in evidence, but, or real Or reality. medical. Yeah, like yeah. something that's rooted in emotions that aren't necessarily true. All the propaganda. And what I think thought that was interesting when you mentioned the pregnancy centers thing, like the fake ones, um... Which, I will say, they do offer resources. And I think if you're the kind of person that you planned on keeping your pregnancy to begin with and you knew that that was a decision that you wanted to make, if you want to go to the one of those and get the free car seat and the, the stuff that they're going to give you and go and get food, I guess that's a choice that you can make and you're entitled to make that decision. I just wouldn't go there if you were on the fence about something and, and they are very misleading in the, in the ways that they handle things. So I just want to put that out there that they do have resources, but they're just really dishonest about how they handle things. Yeah. Um, and I've been attacked for not recommend. Like, I got into a really interesting Facebook argument at one point with someone who's like, but why aren't you recommending that? And I'm like, well, here's why I'm not rec. For one thing, I don't have a lot of experience with them. I, I recognize they have resources, but that's not the resources that I'm going to tell someone to go to. I'm going to tell them to go to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to tell them to go talk to this doctor because I have experience with those, and I know that they're going to give them an unbiased opinion of here's your options that you have and give them the full breadth of what they can do. Um, and unfortunately those centers don't do that. But the other thing that's interesting is in this discussion, you know, I have, um, infertility and that's another one of those things that they've been talking about, um, being roped in on this is because the same people that are against abortion are typically against IVF or they're against, um, other reproductive rights basically, which all, whether we want to talk about that or not, they are under the same umbrella. Um, and the only IVF center in Alaska is in Homer. (laughs) So, yeah, um, so that's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, either interesting or devastating, to see what happens with reproductive rights in general, because we already, our access here is dodgy at best, honestly, um, with, with how little access that we have. Like, we have our rights for, to medical care here, but access is another thing at times. Right. Well, and I think part of our decision to go with Gorgons, because of what a Gorgon represents, you know, in mythology, it's so beautifully terrible, right? Mm-hmm. So terrifyingly beautiful that men were turned to stone. And that idea for me was really just, I want to own that symbolism, right? Where we are more than just our looks, we're more than just the convenience we provide to the men in our lives you know our existence we have the right to exist independently of what we're able to produce or not produce um and when i say that and i include fetuses and small children yeah so future monsters so yeah but i'm curious to see if anybody else has crafted anything or done any feminist crafting or if they've coped with any of the recent stuff with Roe v. Wade through crafting. Well, we love you guys. Sorry that this got a little heavy towards the end, but hopefully you enjoyed our quick journey through feminism. Again, 
These episodes are going to be a little bit shorter because we're trying to accommodate the request for shorter, more digestible episodes. So give us feedback on how you're feeling about it, if you feel like we're not going into enough detail and stuff, and just know, obviously, we have infinite time to continue to record more content, so we'll be having more focused episodes. Thanks! Bye! Bye! Thank you for listening to the Not So Crafty Gorgons. We really appreciate your support, and we couldn't do any of this without you, our listeners. Cover art is by Marina Soul Art. Music is by Naveed, who is a min-me on Fiverr. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or rating on whatever platform that you prefer. And for exclusive content with the Gorgons, including tutorials, swag, and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash notsocraftygorgons. For episode previews and other updates, follow us on Instagram at not underscore so underscore crafty underscore gorgons. <laughs>